Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a legal podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. Kimberly, welcome back. Oh, thanks. We missed you last week. Sure, sure. I was um, happy to find out that I still had a place on the podcast since you and Greg Store were trying to replace me. Oh no, no, it's not like that. Mm-hmm. But you know, mm-hmm. let's move on. No, got... I have I have the recorded evidence. So all right, allegedly, <laughs> alleged recording. You have to say alleged. Allegedly recorded, allegedly evidence. Yeah. Um, so sneak last peek? week of arguments, sneak peek. We got. A whopping seven cases in this last week of arguments starting April 22nd, and one of them is the big census case, which we'll get to. But first, Kimberly, how are we going to start off this week on Monday? Uh, Well, the first case is a FOIA dispute. It is Food Marketing Institute versus Argus Leader Media. Um, Now, this involves a newspaper in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, that wanted to get the redemption amounts for individual stores um, for the amount of money spent there on the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, that is the SNAP program, which is, of course, modern-day food stamps. Mm -hmm. Now, the USDA initially denied that FOIA request under what's known as Exemption 4, and this is an exemption for information um, that would reveal, quote, trade secrets and commercial or financial information obtained from a person and privileged or confidential. And so what's at issue in this case is whether or not uh, that redemption information for individual stores, about 321,000 retail stores, is considered um, confidential. Now, the trade association here that's kind of filling in for the USDA says that if you just look at the word confidential, uh, this information squarely falls within the plain meaning of of that word. Mm -hmm. Um, But muddying the waters a bit is an old case from the D.C. Circuit, which actually interpreted confidential to uh, require a showing of substantial competitive harm. And so um, in this case, it's kind of one of the ongoing tensions between um, old cases that if they were decided today uh, would probably come out the other way. But what the court should do with, you know, these kind of older cases that the current Supreme Court would probably consider wrong. All right. Well, let's see what they think. And so the second case of the day on Monday is Fort Bend County, Texas against Davis. Uh, and this question here is whether Title VII's administrative exhaustion requirement is a jurisdictional prerequisite to suit. <gasps> I'm so You're excited. excited. This I is, know. <laughs> you actually enjoy these types of cases. Whether it's a jurisdictional prerequisite to suit or a waivable claim processing rule. Claims processing rule. I can say here that Kimberly is actually excited about this. This is I do. This really. is not a joke. This um, is you know not this to her is anyway. An ongoing quest, um, you know, to sort out what's really jurisdictional and what's just a claims processing rule. We got some new information earlier this term that there are some mandatory claims processing rule. It's all very exciting. I, you must not have had enough coffee anyway, today we to can, be excited. We can talk about that for a deep deep dive episode, maybe <laughs> a couple, a series of them, maybe. Right, but for now, in this case. 
Um, so, as you know, if you want to file an employment discrimination suit under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, first you need to exhaust administrative remedies. That means you need to file a charge with the EEOC before you can sue in court. The question, though, is whether a failure to do that is jurisdictional or a waivable claim processing rule. If it's jurisdictional, then courts can throw out your suit at any time, because if the court doesn't have jurisdiction, then it can't hear the case. That makes sense, but if it's waivable, then a defendant's failure to challenge the failure on time means the claim could still proceed. And so in this case, the defendant, uh, Fort Bend County, Texas, raised the argument late in the litigation that the plaintiff, Lois Davis, failed to exhaust administrative remedies as to one of the claims she sued over. So Fort Bend's argument is that the administrative requirement is jurisdictional, and Davis says it's waivable, and so the county is out of luck, and we'll see what the justices have to say about that. An interesting access to justice kind of case, right? Yeah. That's how you think of it, right? Uh, probably more so than whatever you were saying. Um, <laughs> anyway, that's Monday. Uh, Tuesday's uh, a little different from usual, a little bigger than usual. We got three arguments, right? Mm-hmm, Including right. The, the census case, which uh, you'll be at in the morning. Why don't you give us a little preview about that? Yeah. So the census case is going to be um, heard at 10 o'clock and the court kind of moved around some cases so that it could accommodate um, this case, which is Department of Commerce versus New York. Now, uh, the question here is whether the Department of Commerce can add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. And, you know, this is pretty important um, because there is no do-over for the census. Once it's done, it's done. Right. And it's used, um, you know, not only to apportion uh, representatives among the states, but it's also used by the states to draw voting lines and also to um, dole out hundreds of billion dollars in federal funds. So um, the stakes are very high. Now, I'm not going to go into too much about what the case is about, right. and that's because- We already did that. Uh, listeners can uh, check out our Deep Dive episode in which we talked to um, Oklahoma Solicitor General Mithin Mithinhani. Um And you should check it out if you're interested in this case. And then- So the court's going to take a little break. They should be done around 11, a little after 11. That's when I'll roll in, maybe around (laughs) around one or so. Your usual. Yeah, exactly. Um, And then they're going to, instead of hearing another case right after, they're going to reconvene at 1 o'clock to hear two cases. Um, So what's the first case that you'll be trying to stay awake for? Right. Well, interesting. You mentioned staying awake. Um, Because this actually deals with an unconscious person. So, okay, the the first and only Fourth Amendment case this term, after a big Fourth Amendment case last term, really? is yeah. Oh, I interesting, didn't know that. right? That is See? interesting. See, oh. it's good. Even the even the host learned something on on sneak peek. Um, Mitchell against Wisconsin. The question is whether a statute authorizing a blood draw from an unconscious motorist provides an exception to the Fourth Amendment warrant requirement. So, what happened was. Gerald Mitchell. Oh, we all know what happened. Do we? <laughs> Don't we? <laughs> well, I could. It's kind of fun. Okay. I mean, all right, go. More fun for some people than others, I guess. <laughs> um, so Gerald Mitchell was convicted of driving while intoxicated. Uh, the reason police knew he was intoxicated was because they got his blood drawn from him while he was unconscious, and they did it without a warrant under the state's implied consent law. And that says the state can get blood from unconscious drivers without a warrant so long as there's probable cause. Uh, Police got a call from someone that there was a drunk person who got into a van and drove away. An officer found Mitchell near 
a beach. He seemed drunk. He was wet, shirtless, and covered in sand. Uh, YOLO. And the cop, uh, he told the cop, actually, that he was drunk. Uh, and that's why he parked his van nearby. And that's the one that the cops got the call for. Uh, so the cop did a preliminary breath test, which showed that Mitchell was drunk, and then he arrested him. But you can't use that preliminary breath test as evidence in court. You see this where this is all going. So as they're driving back to the station, uh, Mitchell is actually getting a little sleepy and he's actually eventually passed out completely. So then the cop drives to the hospital instead of the police station where he gets hospital staff to draw Mitchell's blood. And that's under this state's implied consent law, which says if you're a driver on the road that you impliedly give consent that you know, an officer reads a form asking, you know, are you sure you want to give consent? But, you know, if you're unconscious, you can't really answer that. And so uh, the state is saying here that it is consent that you basically have to withdraw, which you can't do if you're with, uh, unconscious, obviously. So uh, and a bunch of other states besides Wisconsin have a law like this. And so it'll be an important question for the Supreme Court to decide whether that uh, is OK under the Fourth Amendment or not. That's great. I wonder if officers just like drive them around, you know, like like I used to do with my kids. I put them in the back seat, you know, drive them around for a little bit until exactly. they knock out. Yeah, well, if you have... Um, I never drew their blood, though. If you have problem, Well, it's for a motorist, so I don't know about, you know, for a passenger, but... Well, you know, once they are put them in the back of the car, like happened here. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, um, yeah, well, that could be maybe a different case, maybe some different laws implicated there. <laughs> um, but anyway, that's... Um, that's the first case of the afternoon. Then the second case of the afternoon, the which will happen at argument. like yeah. 5 p.m. or something. Uh, What's going to happen 2 there? 2 p.m. Okay. This is Rahif versus United States. And um, this involves what a defendant has to know in connection with a firearms charge. And so uh, the statute is at issue here prohibits possession of a firearm or ammunition by an alien who is illegally or unlawfully in the United States. Um, and so the question is, what does the defendant actually have to know? Do they have to know only that they're in possession of a firearm or ammunition, or do they also have to know their immigration status? Mm. Um, so interesting enough, in the question presented, uh, the petitioner here, Hamid Mohammed, uh, ah, I practiced this so many times before I came in here. Let's try it again. I was wondering Take what two. you were doing. Okay. Muhammad Muhammad Ahmed Ali Rahif mentioned in his question presented that uh, then Justice Gorsuch had argued mm. um, in a case on the Tenth Circuit that a defendant should have to know both and not just one as the lower court held here. And interestingly enough, there is no circuit split on the issue. All courts who have considered the issue have said that you only have to know about the possession. Um, but it seems like uh, Rahif is going into the argument with at least one justice on his side, possibly two, um, because then Judge Kavanaugh has also written quite a bit about mm -hmm. mens rea for criminal defendants um, and how the court should require um, a strong showing of that. And so um, we'll see who else he can pick up um, to get to five. Um, but should be an interesting case. Yeah, I'll be looking for that one, too. Not clear, though, really what it will mean for Rahif, who has already spent 18 months in prison and been deported back to the UAE, but um, hmm. could be important going forward. And maybe even if the law were to apply retroactively to you know, erase some of those convictions. But we'll see. Yeah. All right. Well, that'll be a, another interesting one to, to look out for. Then finally, we'll get to Wednesday where we start off the morning with quarrels against the United States, which is 
the latest in a series of quarrels. cases under the latest in the series of quarrels. Exactly, it's the, the latest, States. the latest quarrel and series of quarrels under the Armed Career Criminal Act, and that's not just a series in general, but that's even a series within this term. So there have been multiple cases this term already decided under the act, and of course that's the law that imposes a mandatory minimum term of 15 years in prison for a convicted felon who unlawfully possesses a firearm and who has three or more prior convictions uh, for a serious drug offense or, uh, more importantly to a lot of this litigation, any uh, violent felony. And so that raises a lot of questions as to what prior convictions can qualify as violent felonies under the Armed Career Criminal Act and therefore trigger that mandatory minimum sentencing. And so in this case, it deals with burglary, which is a fairly commonly uh, used predicate conviction, as they're called, the ones that can wind up serving as enhancing the sentences. And so the question uh, is whether the definition of generic burglary requires proof uh, that intent to commit a crime was present at the time of unlawful entry or first unlawful remaining or whether it's enough that the defendant formed the intent to commit a crime at any time while remaining in the building or structure. And so obviously that makes a big difference because um, if a state law uh, doesn't necessarily, if the Supreme Court winds up saying that you need that sort of heightened intent requirement and the state law that a, the government is trying to use as a predicate offense under the act uh, doesn't qualify, then that could mean that people can wind up you know, not getting these enhanced sentences under some state's laws that maybe don't wind up meeting that intent requirement. So we'll mm -hmm. see um, whether the justices are going to, what the justices are going to do in the latest uh, Armed Career Criminal Act case. And so then finally, the seventh case of the week on Wednesday, what is it? Taggart versus Lorenz, the last case to be argued Ooh. in the term. Um, this is a bankruptcy case. And actually, um, when I was reading the ABA preview on this case, I, I, like, I literally laughed out loud. Oh, no. Um, because As you of, usually do with the ABA preview. Well, with bankruptcy yeah. cases. Yeah. Because um, the preview says, starts off, this is a fascinating case. Um, all right. Yeah. Okay. Good. Well, uh, but actually, that's all I need it, to know. <laughs> it it is. Uh, okay. It, it lives I'm up listening. to its first sentence. So, um, what's at issue here? And you're going to have to hang on to find out the all fascinating right. part. All right. I'm hanging on. Okay. But what's at issue is um, so-called discharge injunctions in bankruptcy, which prevent creditors um, from collecting a discharge debt. Um, from collecting a debt that has been discharged in bankruptcy. And usually if you violate that, uh, you get civil contempt. So the hitch here is that the plaintiffs who were suing the bankrupt individual had actually asked a state court to weigh in on whether they were prohibited from going forward under the discharge injunction. And that court said, no, they could go ahead. And they did. And then a later court uh, actually vacated um, that decision, reversed okay. that decision. And um, then the bankrupt individual went back to the bankruptcy court and um, got the individuals um, held in civil contempt for violating uh, the discharge injunction that the state court had said they weren't in violation of. Um, so the question here, um, that was later reversed by the Ninth Circuit, um, but apparently the Ninth Circuit is the outlier in kind of in having this kind of good faith exception. Um, and so we'll see if the court is going to uh, side with the oft-reversed Ninth Circuit in what seems to be kind of a, I don't know, common sense kind of holding, or if they will uh, go forward and say that there is no, um, you know, bad faith requirement. 
fascinating. All right. Well, that does it for this sneak peek, the last one of the term. Oh, no. That's so sad. Don't be sad. We'll be back next season or next term, as they say. And we'll have another episode recapping the April sitting with yet another very special guest, Professor Leah Littman, who's going to help us break down all of the cases from the April sitting. So we're looking forward to that discussion and be sure to tune into that one. Yeah, I'm glad we booked um, Leah as a special guest rather than that other not special guest that we were going to go with next If you're time. coming on Cases and Controversies, you're special. Ah, yes, exactly. And we're only inviting on special people, so it works out. It's kind of a chicken and the egg thing. Are they special exactly. because they come on or do exactly. they come on because they're special? I don't know. All right, listeners, something for you to think about while you're waiting for the next episode. You can also check out the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.